the discussion is really about what are we, who are we, who are we, right? just that's a, it's an open-ended question, right? Who, who are we? What are we comprised of? What are the forces that make up our entity, our identity, our essence? Uh, and then once you have that prism of, of, of our soul and of our Yitzhara and, and, and the way they interact and the way they conflict with each other, then I think it kind of shows the entire Torah in a different prism, uh, where when we see kind of um, a, a timeline of the development and progress of a child, even before birth, and through the five stages of life that the Mishnah outlines, uh, there's a Mishnah that tells us, this is from Chapters of the Fathers, uh, Chapter 4, Mishnah 22. And it says like this, it outlines five different junctures in life, and that kind of creates a bigger picture for us. You know, we're kind of used to living in the moment, and now we're kind of looking at the forest and not just... Uh, the trees. So the mission reads, against your will you are formed, against your will you are born, against your will you live, against your will your will you die, and against your will you are destined to give an accounting and a reckoning before the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed is He. All humans exist right, in this continuum. Right? We are formed, we're conceived. It's not like anyone made a decision for us to be conceived. I don't, I don't, you know, remembers that? No, that happens you know, by other forces. And we're formed, and we start developing. We start off as a little zygote, and we become a fetus, and we become an embryo, and then we're born. And then once we're born, now we live. And we live, hopefully we live you know, 90, 100, 110 years, long time, very productive life. But, of course, everyone dies. And we're all going to die. And that also happens against our will. And lastly, uh, the last part of this continuum is that we're all going to have to give an accounting for our actions uh, before the Almighty. The decisions, the behavior, the, the values that we lived our life with, those are things that we're going to have to defend in some future time. Now, what I found is, is that there's Talmudic statements that kind of center around each one of these uh, points in time. And if you look at them as a whole, you actually see, like, the development and then life. Of course, life is the most important because that's where we can make decisions. And then death is essentially the undoing of what the beginning was. And our accounting is all a reflection of of everything that came prior to that. So if that doesn't make sense now, maybe it will make sense when we're done. Now, it's interesting that in Jewish literature we find a very detailed narrative of what happens to a child um, from the moment of conception to the moment of birth. For us, like that's, that's, that, that part of life is an enigma. The child's obviously not making any decisions. They're just existing off the mom. And we don't really know much about that. We can't really analyze that because we can't see it and we can't interact with it. We could kind of look at it under the... Uh, we could take a, a, an ultrasound and see... But we don't really know what's really happening. And the Talmud says some insane things, incredible things about this part of life. And of course, this is obviously... To us, the way the Mishnah sees it, this is a juncture onto its own, and this is a, a stage in development onto its own. Now, 
what makes this point in time significant is that at this point in time, the child is not, doesn't have the uh, equilibrium that we have in our lives. In our lives, we're comprised of, uh, of opposing forces that create a balance, and therefore we have what's called free will. Free will is everything in, in Jewish life because that, that, that's where a man, when I say man, I mean mankind, but where, where, where humans have a capacity to do, to do good, to do bad, to do great things, to do terrible things, uh, to, to, you know, to whatever it is, that is the realm we're in. We, because we have the balance, we have the capacity to do things. And thus, that's the purpose, that's our meaning in life because that is a time where we can affect uh, change. We can affect our circumstances. Um, but in, in utero, the child has, uh, is stacked towards one side of the uh, spectrum. How so? Because uh, the Talmud tells us that a child at the moment of conception receives a soul. Now, a soul, if you wanted to know what a soul in isolation, a soul that's not hampered by any counterbalancing forces, if you want to know what that would be like, if you could just isolate the soul, and the soul is there and it's, it's allowed to roam, to be free, if you want to know, then you would actually go to this kind of point in time, this time that against where we are formed, and see what the baby or the, the child in utero, what it, what's it doing, what's happening to it, and what's its perspective on life, because that is a soul in isolation. And in fact, we do have a Talmud that gives a very lengthy narrative about the time of this child in the first of the five junctures of life. Um, and it reads like this. This is from the book of Nida, page 30b. A candle is lit on his head, child in utero, a candle is lit on his head, and he sees and gazes from one end of the world to the other end of the world. Now, if you just read that, you say, there's no, I would mean, I looked at the ultrasounds, there is no candles. In fact, that would be a fire hazard, right? Um, but when you kind of understand what the Talmud means every time it refers to the word candle, and if you look at the verse that says that the soul is, uh, 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 the, 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 the candle of Hashem is the soul of man, and you see another verse in Ecclesiastes, it's a verse in Proverbs, a verse in Ecclesiastes say that a soul is the flame of God, and you see that it's describing a child in utero that we know has a soul but doesn't have the counter uh, counterbalancing forces, then it makes a lot of sense. The child has a soul on his head. There's nothing stopping it. It's unbridled. It's unhindered in any way. And this creates this vision of one end of the world to the other end of the world. And in fact, we have another example of that. Just the terminology is used uh, by Adam. The Talmud talks about Adam pre-sin. Adam was able to see from, Adam actually existed from one end of the world to the other end of the world. What that means exactly is a separate question. But it shows this, this breadth of, of, of perspective that we don't have. We're limited. But the child, in isolation, of course, we don't remember this. None, we don't, none of us remember any of this. But the Talmud tells us the child, because the child has a soul that's not mitigated, that's not limited by any other forces, 
the candle, the soul, so to speak, is in full strength, and it, ha- it has these transcendental experiences. And in fact, if y'all remember, uh, it was, I mean, a little more than a year ago, we looked at a midrash, a very lengthy midrash, that talks about what, hap- what the child experiences in utero, and how the angel gives him these tours, if you remember that. Um, I don't want to go through it again, but there's, it describes the whole process and very detailed accounts of this moment of life because it's, it's important for us because this is what we would experience if we were able to isolate the soul and there was, it had no, it had no uh, counter uh, forces in existence. So does the soul reside in our head? Where well, at this point in time it does. And the head, of course, is the head means it means that that's your perspective, right? That's what your consciousness is. In fact, the the verse does tell us that a soul of a born human resides deep in the innards of its of its uh, uh, of its gut, so to speak. What that means is that there's a shift, you know, Um, in this first of five junctures of life, the, the you know the soul is supreme. And later on, the soul gets demoted. At birth, we'll see the soul gets pushed down and demoted, and then its kind of influence is muted. And that's why we don't feel the soul. We don't see from one of the world to the other. Okay, so that's what it says. Uh, now, it continues the Talmud. There are no days that are, a man is immersed in goodness more than these days in utero. In quotes, verses, these are the best days of the, this is the acme of a child's life, of, a hum- of, of, of us in this big picture of five different eras in, of our lives. The best time for us is when we have just a soul and no physical counteracting force. It's the best. We're the happiest. The Garden of Eden. Yeah, it's, it's basically we're, we're in the Garden of Eden, so to speak. We're our personal, our personal Garden of Eden. That's right. That's, and, and it's interesting because you're connecting that to, to Adam. Okay. I don't know if I intended to, but... <laughs> no, but like, I, I, that's, a good, that's a good point. I've got to add that to my notes. Um... And then it says like this, they teach the child the entire Torah. In utero, the child learns the entire Torah. Now, how does the child learn the whole Torah? The child's very primitive brain. You know, it's developing brain. But the answer is because a soul already knows the entire Torah. So the child has a soul and has nothing to stop it, nothing, no resistance to the soul, then automatically it knows the whole Torah. And think about this. This is a really nice point in time in life. Says the Talmud, continues the Talmud, the child has prophecy. A child has prophecy in utero. What's the, what's the, what's the um, text of the prophecy? Uh, he is told, be, right, right before he's about to be born, be, be righteous, don't be wicked, even if the entire world tells you you are already righteous, Consider yourself to be wicked. Don't get complacent. You should know that the Almighty is pure, the angels are pure, the soul that he placed within you is pure. If you guard it in purity, good. And if not, I'm going to take it away from, from you. So the text of that uh, prophecy is important, but the notion that the child could have prophecy despite having zero achievements is a tremendous idea. How does a child earn prophecy when he hasn't accomplished anything? Well, the answer is because it's a soul in isolation, a soul in isolation is capable of prophecy. Any soul, if you get a box full of souls that's not harbored in a physical, materialistic body, 
and you pick one out, this one could be a prophet, this one could be a prophet, this one could talk to angels, no problem. Prophecy is no big deal. It's not a great, grand accomplishment if you just have a soul. That's what a soul is. A soul is pure spirituality. Of course, it can communicate with, with God, with the angels, other comparable materials or entities of pure spirituality. That's no big deal. To be a human prophet, that's a big deal. Because a human prophet is someone that has that same soul, but has so much other gunk that is inhibiting that soul, yet that person was able to remove and neuter those other influences and revert back to being a soul in isolation and having prophecy once again. That's why it's a big deal to be a prophet. But, uh, but the child in utero, of course, every child, every one of us within the last hundred years had prophecy. Well, we're not such great people. Well, some of us are, right? You guys. Um, we're, we're, but we're, you know, we're, we're average Joes. How do we have prophecy? Well, our soul is not an average Joe. Our soul is pure like the angels, like the Almighty, and of course it has prophecy. But, uh, but that's not, no grand accomplishment because what do we do to earn that? Nothing. Why do we have to earn it? Why can't it just be something? Well, like we said, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no, there is no earning it. We are a spiritual entity having a physical experience not the other way around. Well, but the point is is that if we we don't earn it, well, then what's the big deal? Just like we we don't take any pride in the fact that we can digest because everyone could digest and we were born with that ability, even though it's an incredible ability. If you study about what it is to digest and to be able to separate and you have these little little crevices in your gut that's able to suck out all the nutrients, like that's a pretty incredible skill. You know, if no one had that skill, you would be the greatest magician in the world. The point is, everyone has that skill. We didn't earn it. It's no big deal. It doesn't have any value. Right? Skills that you earn, that you work hard to get, that, uh, you know, that's purposeful. That's meaningful in our lives. Soul is granted to every child at the moment of conception. Yes. So is it every child, like, uh, only Jewish child? No. No. Or everybody? No. It's possible, this is a side question, but it's possible that maybe Jews are more likely to have Kind of higher souls, um, but uh, you got to be careful who you say that to. No, I'm saying, yeah, okay. We've always said chosenness does not imply superiority. Right? So if you're, for instance, you said that. If you're like an Australian <laughs> Aborigine, can you also be a prophet? If yeah. You yeah. Go about well, they, we talked about the, there's, there's non-Jewish prophets as well. Yeah, prophecy is a very high level. Even even Jews today cannot achieve, uh, obtain prophecy. So. But, uh, but um, as humans, we all, everyone obtains prophecy as, as, a, as, a, as a soul, but irrespective. No, I mean, the, God, the book, The Way of God, he does talk about that after the, uh, the nations were broken apart, after the power of Babel, that everyone sort of lowers uh, spiritual level. And because of Abraham's merits, it was like a, a separate sort of soul root that the Jewish people are now a part of. So in Abraham merit, our soul is we are bought in yeah. an mm-hmm. So it is considered it implies superiority, right? Kind of. Yeah. Well it doesn't it, it doesn't mean that we, superiority and more responsibility. I was supposed to say I always yeah. equated chosenness with and, responsibility. 
Well, I, and I, I, but yeah, it's I also it's not exclusivity, which is I think that that's key. Yeah, but anyone who converts huh? attaches to that. Too. Yes, but that's big gifts right. try and distort that. Although they try and use that or pick and choose, you know, they're not necessarily operating with the same principles that we are. Right, right. They're biggest for a reason. Okay, so so that's that's a pretty incredible. We have these, we have these kind of five insights about the child in utero. Um, number one, the candles lit in his head. He sees from one, one end of the world to the other. Number two, the days in utero are the best. He's to, he knows the entire Torah. Uh, and he has an oath. He has prophecy. Pretty incredible stuff. So that's the first of the five sessions of our life. Now, what happens at birth? Right? When birth is a moment in time, right? You weren't born, now you're born. So the Talmud, the way the Talmud describes it, an angel comes, smacks the kid in the mouth, and everything that happens prior, the child forgets. And by the way, the Midrash tells us that uh, the reason why babies cry at birth is because there's a tremendous demotion of soul. The soul was on the pinnacle, top of the world, prophecy, knowing all of Torah, and in an instant, everything's forgotten, everything is demoted, the, the soul is not in the, on the candle in the head, the soul's now searching within his innards, and he's a different person. But what actually happens at birth? What is introduced to the equation that changes everything, number one? And number two, what about what is introduced counteracts with the soul? So the Talmud tells us that a child at birth child at birth receives what's called a yetzer ra, an evil inclination. Now, what does that mean? And what about the evil inclination changes the entire paradigm and causes him to forget the whole Torah, to be incapable of prophecy, to not have the soul on top of his head, not to, be able to, see, not to, 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 to dis- disable the capacity of seeing from one end of the world to the other. Because he's gone from the spiritual to the physical okay. part of the world. Uh, we've talked in some degree on this before, and so therefore the inclination, I mean, there's more forces... Become, become physical as opposed to spiritual, the, the selfishness of people come out. The so all the bad traits are suddenly there and present. Right. And that's all a result of what happened at birth. Okay. So ironically, the moment of joy that we experience with the introduction of a new baby, for that baby's soul, it's almost it's death. So it's almost the exact opposite because it was on top of the world and suddenly it's totally totally not there. It's to- you can live your whole life. Like, once you're born, the soul is, is for com- completely forgotten from your consciousness. If you want to access it, you've got to work so hard to undo what happened at birth. And so, and so there's the, the poison of, for lack of a better word, and I'm thinking of that thing, and I think this is Talmudic, but I learned it years ago. Uh, mankind has a poison in him. The Torah is the antidote. That's right. We spoke about that a few uh, so, times here. So What's that poison? When you're born, you're exposed Amazing. to poison, so we have to 
try and get our soul back by... And what's that poison? It's called the Yetzirah, all Jewish sources. There's a many, many Jewish sources about the Yetzirah. It's very heavy on sources. And now what I did recently here is I kind of... Dan, you had a question. Yeah, just real quick. Is Yetzer the same thing as the soul? What the Yetzer is is a great mystery because uh, there is a, uh, a, a paucity of sources on the Yetzer Tov. Very, very, very limited. There's almost no sources. Because it means things like, yeah, people always prefer that, the evil and the good. But the right. So that's why, that's why I, want, I always like looking at this as a clash of the soul versus the Yetzer Ra. Because those are the two big waves on both sides. Now, there's a difference. A yetzer is not something that you are, in essence, uh, comprised of. It's a force. It's something external, right? It's an, it's an influencer. It's not who you are. But there's a little bit of a misalignment of, uh, or misbalance, wherein the, on the good side, so to speak, on the spiritual side, it's your soul that has all the power and your influence for good, your Yetzir Tov, is very weak. Whereas on the flip side, on the physical side, your body, which is what you are essentially, has very little power. So what you are essentially has very little power, but what is trying to influence you is very strong. So even though they're not exactly parallel to each other, but that's really where this strength lies. And the reason why that is is very fascinating. Why it is that essentially... We're dominantly spiritual, but influentially, we're dominantly physical. And that kind of creates the balance. Whereas we're much more drawn to sin, and that's why sin is pursuing us, like the Mishnah tells us in chapters of the Fathers. Sin pursues us, and we have to fl- I'm sorry, sin pursues us, so we have to flee from it. And a mitzvah flees from us, and we have to chase it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, like, it's like it's breathing in the toxic air. Right. It's just, ah, where do I sign? <laughs> but it's, you asked a very, uh, it's, it's, it's a very delicate, and I think it's a profound point as well, that like a mitzvah is much more rewarding than a sin, than an avera, essentially. If we were to isolate all the forces that kind of bring us to that. But we don't have the same passion and zeal in pursuit of a mitzvah as we do in pursuit of a sin. So that's why it's, I chose to look at it as the soul versus the eight Sarah, even though they're not exactly parallel. Yeah. Okay, if this is too far after, we'll be back in. Okay. So we were talking about it's like Adam before he ate. Yes, yes. Okay. When we're born and that uh, evil information Absolutely. Absolutely. If you look at the sources, you look at Rashi. Rashi is right there. Tells us what changed when Adam ate from the fruit is that he became Yodeya Tovra. He knew good and bad. What that means is, what does it mean to know something? It means it's something internal, correct? But it's but it's but it's knowledge. Knowledge is not essential to who you are, correct? Right? You are not necessarily your knowledge. Why? Because you can exist before you knew knowledge, and then you can exist after you knew knowledge. Knowledge is something which is incidental. Right? 
Correct? Now, for God, it's different, which confuses us because God is not separate from his knowledge. Separate point. That's maybe a little needs to be uh, rolled back in. But to know good and evil means to have an internal drive for good and evil. So what transformed with Adam when he sinned was the evil inclination which uh, uh, theretofore or thence, uh, well, theretofore, I think is the right way to say it, but previously had been external to him. He didn't have an evil inclination internally. Now he has an evil inclination internally, just like us, right? In utero, we don't even have an evil inclination, right? Certainly not internally. And then at birth, we get it. Um, Now, just like Adam, not that you brought up Adam, just like Adam, when he sinned, he sinned because it's ultimately better to have an evil inclination. And he sinned mindfully, not like we think typically when we read the story that Adam was just foolish and not capable of rational thought. And he just wasn't wanting fruit. Yeah, he, he was just so consumed with petty desire. That's, that, that's a mistake. Adam reasonably and rationally chose to change his internal paradigm and to up the ante of his, of his free will choices. Just like we're joyous when a child's born because it's more opportunity for purpose in life. Even though we know the child himself and the child's soul is worse off now. So is it kind of like the idea if, if I'm never tempted to do bad, I cannot say, oh, look at you, you always do good. If I've never had or been tempted or had the opportunity to do bad, then that diminishes my good? I don't understand what you said. Can you say that again? always have the opportunity in the physical world. There's if, if I don't have the ability to sin, my... Right, if you know, that's right. If not sinning is not, is not meaningful. Sinning. That's right. Okay. That's why the Mishnah, that's why the, the Midrash tells us, Vayar Elohim es asher asa, vihine tov ma'od, which is, I think, the 26th or 27th verse in the Torah. And the Almighty, so everything, everything he did, and behold, it was exceedingly good. Says the Midrash, what does good mean? Good refers to the good inclination, Yetzer Tov. What does it mean, exceedingly good? What's tov ma'od, very good? Ma'od. This is referring to the Yetzirah. So, uh, in aggregate, we're much better off that we have a Yetzirah. So, but in, in Adam, the prophesied, so he knew what was going to be the outcome, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Adam chose to change the level of free will that he had. And that's why Adam didn't have Torah. If you notice, Adam didn't have Torah. So then why and did he like, immediately blame somebody else for his choice? Well, Okay, so that's a good question. I like the question. But uh, Steve said is that we have this uh, poison that there's Torah's the antidote, correct? Because mm-hmm. now that we have a Yetzirah, the only way to be successful is if we up the ante on the other side in the opposing side with the Torah. Okay. And Adam, didn't Adam didn't have Torah because he didn't need Torah because he, he had a much lower level of free he choice. He had it in the womb, but he didn't have it. Well, he wasn't. Well, he had it, yeah, well, he had it maybe internally, but... Uh, okay. But his soul had it, but he didn't, his physical didn't have it. I want to know why God would not <clears throat> let him eat from the fruit of good and evil. Uh, how, how do you know what's evil if you, I mean, if you don't know what it is? Now, here, it, they have sacrifices for unintentional sin in the early days. Sacrifice some bull or some animal or something like that for unintentional sins. So if the guy doesn't know between good and evil, how does he know? 
Well, he knew, but he didn't know it internally. That's the point. The point is, is that it existed. The evil and the drive for evil existed, but it was a less potent force because it was external to him, right? Uh, as, as opposed to... Well, but the existence... The but the difference is that the good was much more of a potent force because that was an internal desire as opposed to the external desire of bad. And then he knew good and bad, they both were internal. Either way, um, like, like you said, at birth, the same thing that happened to Adam happens to us. Now, what is the Yetzirah and how is it exactly in opposition to the soul that it changes everything? So, uh, the sources. Define the Yesara again. Just oh, well, we're trying, that's exactly what we're trying to do right now. Okay. Um, exactly, exactly what we're trying to do now. I know what it, we've been talking So, I found two thing. definitions in the Talmud. Now, the problem with that is that these, these definitions, I can't imagine of anything being more different than these two definitions. So, what I'm trying to do here today is to see if they can um, come together and create. Um, Unity of understanding, right? So the first one is from the Talmud and Brachos, and I mentioned this uh, in passing previously here. And this is talking about a, a prayer that one of the rabbis would say. This is in the book of Brachos. It talks about the laws of prayer uh, and the various prayers that everyone would do. And it, it gives a list of a bunch of scholars, of sages of the time, uh, and their post-prayer prayers. They would have prayers, and then afterwards they would say, have this, this, this one quick send-off prayer as well. So what was his prayer? He would say as follows, Master of the world, behold, it is known and revealed before you that our will, our desire, is to do your will. And what stops us? What inhibits us? What is the obstacle that prevents us from doing your will? the yeast in the dough and subservience to foreign rulers. May it be the will before you that you'll save us from them and we will return to do the, uh, the laws of your will wholeheartedly. That's the prayer that he would say. All the commentators point out that this description of what's stopping us from doing God's will is the yeast in the bread, or the yeast in the dough, is a reference to the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. Now, of course, that raises obvious questions. What does yeast in the dough have to do with anything? What, is, you know, what, is, what, what kind of connection at all? Like the, the fact that yeast makes uh, dough, makes it rise, and makes it bread, what does that in any way have to do with evil inclination of being a counterforce for us to do God's will. Okay, that's the definition number one. Definition number two is also from the Talmud. This is from the book of Shabbos. This is page 105b. And this also we have mentioned prior. And this quotes a verse in Psalms 81. And the verse says as follows, You should not have within you a foreign God, and you should not bow down to an alien God. But isn't an evil inclination, almost by definition, kind of a foreign God? Well, okay, but 
It's the Batam asks the question, you should have within you a foreign god? What does it mean to have a foreign god within you? Says the Talmud, what, what, what is this foreign god that's within a person? It's the Yetzirah. An inclination isn't an inclination of anything by definition, an internal thing. It's a, right, but it's described. Because on one hand, we have, we have it being defined, being classified as yeast in the bread. And on the other hand, we're having it classified as a foreign god within us. Now, what does that mean? Would that be the devil? But what does that even mean? Well, well, a foreign god within saying, us? I'm just trying to, you know... And, and how do these things coexist? So... Okay. But you could have dough without yeast. You have matzah, that's right. Matzah is dough without yeast. And it still provides food, it's still n- nourishment. Yeast is what makes it good, right? Okay. So, very interesting, right? So, yeast, what does yeast do? How does it affect the dough? It doesn't actually change it nutritionally, it just changes its the way it's presented, kind of from a flat, dry, powdery matzah, it becomes a light and fluffy and big uh, bread. So that's a very interesting idea. Um, but I want, I want to kind of wrap this together with a third source. This is from the book of Kiddushin on page 30b, and it's also found the same exact source on the book of Sukkah, which, who, who wants to guess what the book of Sukkah talks about? That's right. Very good. You guys are amazing. <laughs> and uh, and they are on page 52A uh, on the bottom and 52B on the top. It says like this. Just listen closely to the nuance of the, of the text. Rabbi Yitzchak said, the evil inclination of a person overpowers him every day. Says Rabbi Shimon Lakish, the evil creation of a person renews itself every day. We have, in just proximity to each other, two descriptions of the modi operandi of the evil creation. Number one, it overpowers. Number two, it renews. So, of course, these are, these, these are not... Uh, idle uh, nuances in the text. Rather, what it's telling us is that there are two ways that the evil inclination operates. Number one, it renews. To renew is to innovate. There's always something new that the evil inclination creates as something to pursue in this world. So, uh, like everyone here agreed, especially, as Steve said very clearly, evil inclination is what binds us to the physical world. By being bound to the physical world, we get unbound from the spiritual world because that's in, those are exact opposites of each other. Whereas our soul is binding us to God and to God's Torah and to prophecy, the evil inclination is binding us to the physical world, to the transient, uh, ephemeral world. And the way it does it is it, you have to come up with something new, right? What's the next best thing, right? Don't give me yesterday's. Right? What have you done for me lately? <laughs> Whereas 
you know, it's always creating this allure of something exciting. It's always taking the physical world and amplifying it and augmenting it and making it so much more exciting. And this can directly be correlated to uh, to a uh, to yeast. Uh, yeast, all it does is change the experience of eating. Eating, everyone needs to eat. Physical, if we're physically oriented, if we're spiritually oriented, we all need to eat. The difference is that if you're spiritually oriented, you're eating merely to achieve a goal, and that is to have sustenance. Matzah's just fine. But if you're physically oriented, so you're looking for physical experiences, matzah's not an experience. It's not. It's devoid of any experience. So the Yetzirah takes the matzah and transforms it into something which is an end unto its own, which is a pursuit unto its own. So what the Yetzirah does in this power of renewal, in its capacity as a yeast in the bread, is it takes the physical world and makes it not from a means, but rather an end unto its own. And it does that by constantly renewing. There's always something new in fashion. There's always something new in technology. There's always something new in entertainment. There's always something to capture our hearts and minds. And that's a function of the Yetzirah, always trying to bind us more and more to this world. Now, importantly, it doesn't mean that as spiritual beings, we're divorced from this world. Of course not. But we have a perception, we have a recognition that our relationship with this world is the relationship of someone walking through a long corridor. Right? We're here as a means to an end. This is not the ultimate world. We're all going to die, right? So what are we working for? We're working for towards a bigger picture, towards these five junctures in life. We have that 30,000 foot view of life. And therefore we use this world, but not as an end unto its own, rather as a means towards something else. Says the Yetzirah, no, let's renew it. Let's inject yeast into everything and make it something which is a final destination and thus unbinding us from God. That's the power of renewal. You said unbinding us? Yes, from God, God. that's right. It means that our soul that was so bound to the Almighty, right, and that was, our, that was in our mind, that was our conception, that was our relationship and our perspective to the world, and suddenly, no, like suddenly everything that we see, everything that's physical around us becomes our ultimate purpose and our ultimate role in, in life. Going back to our analogy with the garden and everything, is, is that what happened to Eve? The yeast got in there when, when it was it? Say that the serpent was actually the Yetzer Ra? Yes, we can say it. Oh, look, you'll be like God if you eat this. And he was really fluffing up what she. Right, but, but we, we're trying not, we, we always try not to look at that story simplistically. But certainly, post facto, post facto, uh, in fact, the Talmud tells us, now that you mention it, uh, that after they sinned, uh, the the serpent inserted zuhama, zuhama is poison really, into them. Now what, what's that poison? That's the evil inclination. It's poison within us because it's diverting us, it's distorting us and diverting us away from our purpose in life. Um, and 
uh, and our goal is to rid ourselves of, of, of that poison. How we do that, that's via, via Torah. But, at, but now we're, we're, we're at the juncture of birth, and what happens to that at birth? We get the Yetzirah, and we see how that is antithetical to the soul, because the Yetzirah is all about magnifying and augmenting our connection to this world, to this physical world that's not going to last forever, and making this an end and not just a means, and that's in direct opposition to our soul that wants us to be bound to the spiritual realms uh, entirely. Um, Yes? I I don't want to get off what we're trying to... But since we're mentioning the serpent, the serpent is the evil inclination. Again, not trying to divert from from the, the point, but... I mean, is Jewish teaching that the serpent was a physical serpent, or is there more meat? Because I know there's a Jewish concept somewhere, I believe, of Satan, isn't there, in some degree? Yes, but not, not, not as... always said that was Satan. But not as an opposing force to God. So we don't believe that God has any rivals, right? There's only one God. There's no rivals, there's no parts, none so of that. what is the Jewish teaching? So the, Sa- the Satan is a, a partner... To the Yetzirah. The Satan and the Yetzirah, in fact, are different elements of the same whole. They're, they are what the Almighty placed in the world to make our life meaningful, to give us resistance in, in our pursuit of greatness. Satan is, okay. That's right. So sa- Satan, Satan is not a being, per se? Uh, well, it's a spiritual it? force. It's a spiritual force. That's right. Okay. That, but but it's, it's totally under the dominion of God. It's not, uh, it's not a rival in any way. So Just like the Yetzirah is what the Almighty created, and it's, it's really good in aggregates because it makes our life meaningful. Satan's the same thing. God and by the way, there's a third, uh, there's a third uh, component to that, and that was, that's called Malach Hamavis, the angel of death. Okay. That's right. So the Talmud tells us in the book of Baba Basra that these are th- three elements of the same entity. It's, it's the entity that the Almighty implanted in the world to make our life meaningful, to give us resistance to give us distance between us and him, and to, therefore to give us a role with the help of the Torah to try to get closer to God despite our resistance. And that has, it's a three-headed monster, the Yetzirah, the Satan, and the Malachim Okay, the, so God created Satan. Yes, that's right, that's right. It's, it's, it's an employee of the Almighty. <laughs> okay. That's right. Well, he would have had to have created him. Yeah. Well, but I guess the Christian view is Satan... Yes, but the but the the first line of Jewish philosophy and Jewish theology reads that nothing can exist outside of God allowing it to exist. So God created everything. So whatever Satan is, whatever the Yetzirah is, whatever the Malachimavis is, whatever all these angels are, they cannot go rogue. They cannot uh, they cannot resist what the Almighty instructs them to do. We can, by the way. We're humans. We can. Right. We have free will. So angels don't have free will. Angels do not have free will, just like animals don't have free will. Now, angels aren't entirely spiritual. Uh, animals are entirely physical, and therefore neither of them can have free will. We're a mix of the two, and therefore we can have free will. Okay. And we think. Well, angels think also. Angels are much more advanced intellectually than we are. Uh, but the, you know, but to them, that's not an accomplishment. To us, to sit down and think is is an accomplishment. Now, I want to I want to kind of throw a few more cool, interesting things here into the into the cauldron. So we have the angel, the the Yetzirah, that is 
the yeast, which renews, which changes our perspective and our relationship to this world. What about the angel, the Yetzirah, that is overpowering us, overwhelming us, and that is the foreign God within us? This refers to its other uh, method that it employs. It's not about always renewing, creating excitement and allure and, uh, and um, enticing us uh, by distorting reality, but rather it, ut- it utilizes sheer brute force to compel us to sin, so to speak. Uh, just like a foreign, like a, like a, what does it mean to have a God? A God means, is, this is what the Almighty says. It's no questions asked. That's just the way it is. The, the, the Yetzirah, the way it operates is that it has like, a, it can have a vise-like grip on our decision-making, and we could sin even though we're not driven to sin. You know, we're not, we, we, you know, we're not like panting and we're so excited and we're so enticed and we're so uh, aroused to sin. It's no, it's just that's the way it is, and we follow like indentured enslaved servants. We just follow. We just follow. We just follow orders, like uh, a um, we're subjugated to it. We're we, we're we're submitted to it, and we're under its dominion. And that's what it means. It's a foreign god within us. It supplants God Himself from being. What tells us, you know, the entity that tells us what to do, and now it tells us what to do. And it's almost as if that, that, that's what it means to have a, that's what it means, that's what idolatry actually means. It means that the Yetzirah becomes a foreign God within us. It's, it's, it's a God because we just listened to it, we can never question it. And you talk to people, we, we see no people like that. To them, there are certain, there are certain sins that the Torah tells them, I says, no. And they say, no, this is, this has to happen. It's almost as if God, their God, lowercase g, tells them that they have to do that. It's a foreign God within them. And they have no say in the matter. And that's what it means, that every day the Yetzirah overpowers us. It's not because he creates illusions, the mirage of that this is so valuable. No, it's just because he has total control and he's supplanting God from the primacy in our world. Whereas the soul, the soul had a deep recognition of the dominion of God, and suddenly at birth comes along the Yetzirah, which renews itself every day, but also overpowers us every day, and creates this foreign God within us, and we're almost helpless. Now, like an addiction? An addiction would be a great example. It's, it's, you can't, you're, you're helpless. But addiction progresses because of choices that we make to get ourselves into that kind of situation. I think addiction is a great analogy. Yes, it is a great analogy. Now, I want to just add another wrinkle here. I feel like there's a lot of wrinkles here. A lot of wrinkles. Um, It's a lot to kind of hold, uh, keep track of as well. The Yetzirah is also dynamic. This is two more sources. Um, from previous places that we read. These are the big places in the Talmud where it discusses the Yetzirah. And it says, number one, it says if someone smashes vessels in fury, in anger, you get angry, you start throwing dishes on the floor, right? 
says the Talmud, this person, you should look at him like they're idolaters. He's an, he's an idolater. Smashing stuff is bad, it's wasteful. Why is it idolatry? Says the Talmud, This is the craftsmanship of the Yetzirah. Today, he tells you to do this, and tomorrow he tells you to do that, and the next he tells you to do that, and finally he tells you to do idolatry, and you just follow him. Well, it's a slippery slope. You, you, you get progressively more and more under his spell. Now, the way it starts is by illusion. So the Eitzarah really, essentially, creates illusions for us. He throws in the yeast and we, we, you know, we buy his shtick. But every time we fall into that pattern, then he becomes more and more the foreign god within us. It doesn't start off as a foreign god within us. That progressively changes. And therefore, we become more and more under his domain until finally we're even at the point of doing idolatry. Now the way the Talmud also says it, uh, says Rabbi Asi, the Yetzirah initially starts off like a spider's web, and in the end, it becomes like a thick rope that attaches an ox to a plow. It's dynamic. But what part of it is dynamic? It's not the part of illusions, because you know, the, the illusions don't necessarily get any more. If you, fa- if, you, if you fall into the trap the first time, well, then he just does it again. He doesn't need to get worse. What changes is you become more and more under the rule, the dominion of this foreign god within you, of the Yetzirah, of the who is overpowering you every day, and therefore becomes harder and harder to undo that. Like I said, it's like addiction. Right? The first time, you're not so addicted to it. You know, you could break out like you're, if I, if I attach you in spider's webs, it's a very thin rope. You're not so bound. But if I make it thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker, and every time you do it, it becomes thicker, it becomes harder to undo it. And at the end, you're totally bound because there's thick rope that, 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 that binds you to your now foreign God within you. And by the way, interesting that it uses a rope that attaches an ox to a plow. You know, what, is a, you know, what kind of say does the ox have in plowing the field? It doesn't. There's a yoke in it, and it just works, and it doesn't have a mind of its own. That's what, that's what happens to people that are getting addicted. You know, they're totally bound, and they don't think about it. They don't have a say in the matter. You know, they, are, they, they, are, they just follow instructions of their foreign God within them. But our hope is, of course, to not get there. And our hope is to, 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 to remain, you know, where the Yetzirah is not a foreign God within us. But it's, still, it's not going to stop, by the way, trying to tempt us. It'll always try to tempt us. But if we win those battles... It'll never take control over us. And thus, the only God that we will have is the capital G God. And we'll be totally free internally of any foreign rulers. Now, perhaps we can say, I think we actually can say, that the way you are measured in your level of righteousness versus wickedness 
is to the degree of who controls, who holds the reins over your heart. Which God? Did you allow your Yetzirah to supplant God from being in control of your life, of your heart, and now you have a foreign God within you, and the rope's getting thicker and thicker, or are you constantly cutting through these spider's webs and not allowing it to get, and get any foothold, any beachhead in your heart, and you have only one God within you, and you know what? The Yetzirah won't stop. The Yetzirah is relentless. But what is, it, what is he going to do? He's going to try to renew itself every day, but he's not, you're not going to allow him to overpower you every day. He'll renew. And by the way, yeast and bread, bread compared to matzah, that's the beginning. You know, the bread gets bigger and the matzah gets nastier. You know? And, and he's going to up the ante again and again and again. But you can win every time. You win every time. And then you do not allow him to have a foothold within you. So ironically, if you were to take a look at a, at a wicked person and a, and a righteous person. The wicked person, the Yetzirah that renews, the yeast Yetzirah, is kind of weak. Because it doesn't need to do anything. It, it controls you with the other Yetzirah, with the, with, with the thick ropes that bind you into its service. It's the foreign God within you. It doesn't need so much temptation. It started off with temptation, but you just, you just lost. You just laid down your arms in submission. Okay, so it wound itself more and more around you, and it's total control of you. If you flip the side, the, the tzaddik, to him, the Yetzirah that is the foreign God within us has, has no foothold. It's not there. It's, it's, it's not even the strands of, of the spider. It starts off a strands, but he doesn't even get there. There's, there's nothing there. But... Does that mean the Yetzirah gives up? No. It just changes from uh, yeast in the bread to yeast and other things and bigger yeast and more exciting yeast and more and more and more and more, more exciting yeast and it doesn't stop. So much so that the Gemara tells a story about Abaye. Abaye was one of the great rabbis. In fact, the, the second most mentioned name in the Talmud, Abaye. Great personality lived in the, uh, uh, thir- I think the third or fourth century, and he was privy to conversation between a young boy and a young girl. They said, oh, "Tomorrow we're going to go for a nice long walk in the forest." What is a young boy and a young girl going to do together in the forest? Everyone knows, right? So Abai says, "I'm going to, I'm going to follow them and I'm going to stop them from sinning." So the next morning. The kids wake up, and they start their little spazir together. Abai is following behind them. Right? You're going to see what's going to happen. And they're walking, and they're walking, and Abai is following them. And finally, they leave. And they leave, and they say, oh, it was so nice to walk together. If only we could be together for longer. And they go their separate ways. And Abai is just, he's just, he can't believe what happened. And he says, if this was me, I, there's no way I wouldn't sin. He's the great Torah scholar. He's the, the leader of the generation. He said he would have sinned. If it was him, he would have sinned. And he was depressed. And Thomas says he was leaning against the wall in depression. Until some elderly person said to him, whoever's greater than his friend has a greater Yetzirah than his friend. 
Now, what does that mean? Which part of which Yetzirah is it? Is it the foreign god? Certainly not. It's not the Abayah was not had didn't have the ropes bound around him. He didn't. But because he resisted, the Yetzirah ups the dosage. These people, they were, they were decent people, but they didn't have the same, the same uh, yeast Yetzirah that Abayah did. And therefore, to them, it wasn't such a, it wasn't such a big desire to, to sin. That's absolutely, in fact, that's one of the examples that the, the that imagery that you're saying of a, of a city under siege is actually used in the Talmud. So it's a pretty gloom way of living. Well, but think about it this way. It's a defensive battle. Not so bad. We're entrenched. We start off life, the Yetzirah has no foothold in us. Our soul is pure. The question is, are we going to be successful in a defensive battle? I think... Oh yeah, and there's, there's a lot of, it's very rewarding as well. I think it would be much harder if we had to lay siege to some other city and we don't even know what it is we're, what we need to get and what it is we need to obtain. Yeah, life is very often presented at, in, as in combat and military terminology. In fact, certainly with the Yetzirah, it's a battle of the Yetzirah. Who is the mighty person? He who conquers as Yetzirah. It's, it's certainly presented in one, in, in, um, uh, in terms of, of warfare. In fact, uh, I, I was thinking that I would talk about it today, but I realized on Friday that I wouldn't be able to talk about it today. I want to schedule a class to see exactly how do we engage with the Eighth How do you fight it? How do you battle it? Because it's very much presented in terms of military, uh, ter- uh, strategy and tactics that you would use uh, on the battlefront. You use uh, with the variety of methods that we uh, engage and battle with our Yetzirah, maybe we could put it into the schedule. Uh, because we see a whole, a whole list of different ways, and it's kind of like posi- you know, military positioning, so to speak. I want to read to you guys another f- a very fascinating Talmud. And you'll see how it's problematic. You won't see exactly how problematic it is, and why it took me so long to kind of un- un- untangle, disentangle this whole issue and put everything in, the, in its correct perspective. And especially because I'm going to add another wrinkle to it, which will show you why it's problematic, but you already have the answer, so it'll be good. I'm just giving you guys, I'm spoon-feeding you guys everything that I worked so hard to try to understand. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> okay, so this is... So this is from the uh, Talmud in Sukkah, same, same page 52. And it talks about sometime in the future, the, the Almighty is going to come and slaughter the Yetzirah. So that's a, an interesting thing on the side. Let's just put that on the side. Let's just accept that. Whatever that means is a good question. I'm not saying it's not a good question. But the, the optics are very intriguing. In the future, the Almighty is going to slaughter the Yetzirah, the, the and who's going to be privy to that? The tzaddikim, the righteous, and the rishayim, and the wicked. Okay. The tzaddikim 
are going to see the Yetzirah and it's going to look to them, appear to them, like a huge mountain. The Rishayim, the wicked, it's going to appear to them like a strand of hair. And both groups are going to be crying. The Tzadikim are going to be crying, the Rishayim, everyone's crying. Why are they crying? The tzaddikim, the righteous, are crying, and they said, how were we able to conquer such a huge mountain? And the Rishayim, the wicked, are going to be crying, and they're going to be saying, how were we unable to conquer this strand of here? That's the Talmud. Now, like I said, there's, there's a lot of interesting imagery here. Of course, the whole question of what does it mean to slaughter, what, what does it mean some future time, the Mizan slaughter the, the Yetzirah, that's a good question. Let's put that on the side. But to me, how is it possible that the Yetzirah, one entity, a single entity, appears so drastically different to the Tzadikim and to the Rishayim? Okay. Well, the, I think the answer is in line with what we said. The Risham are the ones that submit themselves to the Yetzirah. And it gets, it gets, it gets, binds them tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. Does the Yetzirah need to up its ante? No. Because, you know, they're constantly losing. It doesn't need to add to the voltage. They're small people, and therefore they have a small Yetzirah. They're not like Habaye. That was to keep it a fair battle. Yes. He doesn't want that's right. It's always going to be balanced. The Torah scholar has more defense mechanisms and ways of battling it, so he's going to make the Yetzirah. Well, and also the and also the, the, the Torah scholar and the and the tzaddik is someone who's, who is successful. So if you're successful at a certain voltage, you got to up the voltage, right? But if but if you're failing, you don't need to add anything. Didn't uh, God uh, uh, remove the Yetzirah during Mount Sinai? Maybe. Uh, maybe right. afterwards, I think, because, that, that's because, the, because they have, they have, they all, ha, they all experience prophecy, right? How could you experience prophecy? It means maybe the Almighty artificially undid it. And it was talking about the Saturn walking around, <coughs> and that doesn't take like it was sort of like an external being at that point. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because otherwise, how do they experience prophecy? Remember, these are regular Joes. So. The Tzadikim are the ones that constantly resisted the Yetzirah. So therefore, he had to up the ante. And therefore, it became higher and higher and higher. And they were constantly winning. And, they, and to them, it's, it's emotional. How were we able to uh, conquer such a, a, a huge mountain? The Rishayim, the wicked people, they constantly lost. Therefore, the Yetzirah did not need to up its ante. Well, it, it got its overpowering. It overpowered them. And therefore, it bound them more and more to its uh, to its uh, to its uh, a service, and the foreign god that is within them got stronger and stronger and more and more bold. Uh, but to them, they, they they're devastated that they were that they tripped over something as insignificant as this strand of here. Now. I want to quickly go through the last three stages of this model because if you look at Torah and how Torah fits into this picture, 
Torah is there to help us to be successful in our battle against the Yitzhah. And I don't want to get too much, I don't want to have a whole class on that, of how we actually fight and combat with the Yitzhah. Uh, but yes, 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 has a mil- mil- military spin to it. Uh, but that's what life really is. Life is that we're, we we are strung between these two titanic forces: the soul on one end, the Eitz on the other hand. They're exact opposites of each other, and they have exact opposite agendas. And we're in the middle. You know, we ha- we're in the middle, and, the, and our decisions impact where we're going to be and, and what is going to be those changes in, in, the, in, in the breakdown of the soul and the eight Sarah. Now, what happens when we die? Well, you have no longer the evil inclination. I mean, the eight Sarah is gone, isn't it? Uh, at least in you individually, isn't it? Now we only have the soul, so we don't have the physical... Physical going. Yeah. So it's kind of like. Well, okay, okay, I understand. But you're, I don't, you're guys talking about what happens after you die. Oh, okay. I'm saying what happens at death. Oh. You don't get slapped on the behind again. <laughs> <laughs> so at death, these forces are, are separated, right? The, the, the beast that's within you and the angels within you are, are now separated so once it's more. Back to pre birth, basically. Fair. But if you look at the makeup of the soul now and the eight around now, after living a whole life full of decisions, the way these two are bound to each other is contingent upon what choices you've made in your lives. So not all deaths are created equal either. Because the death is going to be in a, a separation of soul and body, of soul and physicality. And to the degree that you were successful in making sure that the soul did not become the foreign God within you, that's how seamless the separation of the two is. Because they can be intertwined Then it's much more complicated. So we, are we getting into the concept, are we about to enter into the concept of afterlife here? No, we're talking about right now the moment of death. Well, but I understand, but... Okay, am I jumping the gun by asking yeah. a question? Okay. Yeah, no, well, a little bit. We'll get to in a little bit. I'm do this quickly because I don't go. I don't want to go over time. But they are going to be detangled or, or separated. But the Talmud tells us in the Book of Brachos eight a. There's nine hundred and three levels of death. Now, the best level of death is called misas nishika. Now that is, says the Talmud, it's like take, you have a glass of milk, there's a strand of hair in it. There's a strand of hair in it. You scoop out the glass of milk and it's kind of seamless. You scoop out the hair. Scoop out the hair, sorry. Scoop out the hair and it's, and it's seamless. So what does that say? The, the, the hair is your soul. That strand of hair is your Yetzirah. It's like it's it's like the uh, it's like the spider web. It's it's not significant. It doesn't have a foothold. It doesn't impact your soul. Your soul is still pure, and the separation of the two is seamless as well. However, what's the worst kind of death? It's called Astra. The worst kind of death is called Astra. And what's that like? That is like separating thorns 
that got entangled in a ball of, of wool. So what we see is, is that, yes, one of them is the soul, one of them is the, is the body or the physicality, but you see a change in what happened to the soul. The soul started off as milk, and now it is a ball of wool. And the Yetzirah started off as a strand of hair, and now it's thorns. It got thicker and thicker and thicker, and it impacted negatively the soul. And now to separate them is a big deal. And what happens, and you look at the soul, the soul has been impacted. It's been diminished from its previous stature. And it's, you know, the, the, the oath that you were commissioned at birth, that prophecy that says, your soul is pure, keep it in its purity, well, you failed. Because your soul is not in its purity. You allow the Yetzirah to become the foreign God within you. And that's reflected in your death. And all these things, like I said, they all happen against your will. Against the will you are formed, become a, you have a soul. Against the will you are, you're born, you, have, you now have Yetzirah. Against the will you live, but not against the will you make choices. You're, you're living, well, that's against your will. But what you do with your life, that's up to you. And those choices are reflected in against the will you die. And your death is an exact undoing of your soul in Yetzirah. And the decisions that you made and how much you allowed your soul to gain a foothold in your, uh, not soul, you, the much you allowed to get a foothold in your world and become a foreign god and they get thicker and thicker and thicker, well, then undoing it is even more complicated. And the soul is now impacted and the eights and little parts of the, of the, of the thorns are going to get stuck in the soul and little parts of the soul are going to get stuck in the eights around. It's a messy, messy undoing. And then after your life, after you're done, what are you? You are what your soul was. Now you're just a soul. The body is put into the ground, forgotten about, starts decomposing right away. Okay, well, what's your soul? Did you preserve it in its purity? Did you resist the Yetzirah? Or did you, unfortunately, allow it to be sullied by the Yetzirah and its agenda? And that now your now your soul is is damaged. Okay, well then now in the last part, which is against the will, you are have to give an accounting. You have to give an accounting of your decisions because remember you were given an oath, and the oath said, "Be a tzaddik." What's a tzaddik? A tzaddik is those people who looked at the eighth Torah that was slaughtered and said, "How do we overcome such a mountain?" Don't be a Russia. Don't be the people that trip over the strand of here. And even if the whole world tells you you're a tzaddik, in your eyes, make believe you're a rasha. You always have to continue working. You can never take your foot off the gas. And you should know that the, your soul is pure, and the angels are pure, and the Almighty is pure, and the Almighty is pure, the angels are pure, and the soul they gave you is pure. Guard it in its purity. Make sure that this glass of milk does not turn into a bowl, a ball of wool by allowing the Yetzirah to uh, uh, ferment uh, a discord I- internally and, um, uh, and damage your soul. And now what you are is, well, not, that's the result. It's just a direct result, and then you're going to have to have an accounting for your decisions post facto. Now, um, like we said when we began, this does not give us necessarily instructions of how to live a better life because it's, it's just what life really is. 
But I think it's a very valuable introduction to Torah because it really shows us what Torah is there to help us accomplish and how meaningful it is to our lives, how important it is to our lives, how vital it is to our lives. Because it's, it's who we are and it's our mission. And it's, it's the credo of, of, of our nation is that we have a soul, we have a Torah to preserve it, the soul's purity. And it's, 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 it's not some idea that, oh, we're making our, our parents happy, our grandparents happy, oh, we're making the rabbi happy, uh, we're making God happy. No, it's about us. It's, we're trying to do what's best for us in our lives. Because we want to live the, the life to its maximum. We want to fulfill what the Almighty wants of us because it, it's us and it affects who we are. And our makeup of, of what we are, our soul, which is us, which is what we're going to exist with for the rest of our for eternity, the body, is, the body is a passing phase, right? It's 70, 80, 90, 100 years. That's, that's all we've got here with the body. But the decisions that we make are critical because they, they affect our soul and we're going to live with those decisions forever. Um, I think it's a very valuable uh, model that the Talmud outlines for us. Uh, I think it makes a lot of, uh, of what we do in this, in, in this middle stage that we're all in right now, the life that we're in now. It, makes, it provides clarity um, to why all the decisions that we're doing and why every mitzvah is a mitzvah of preference of soul over body. Every single one of them. A Yetzirah is all about preference of, pre- preference of body over soul. Does it really matter? Well, if we have a small view on life, this is, you know, we're here, we know for sure we're bodies, right? Soul is an idea, okay, maybe we could prove parts of it or whatever. Uh, but now we see what mitzvahs are. Mitzvahs are empowering of soul, cleansing of soul, ensuring the soul's purity. It's that defense of our city, which is our lives, which is our humanity, which is our identity. That's what it is. And it's, therefore, it's the Almighty benefit us by giving us so many mitzvahs because the mitzvahs are, are really our benefits for us. It's, it's, it's ammunition, it's weapons in our fight for defense of the home front. And I think that knowledge is very empowering because I think it can really uh, uh, transform the way we relate to Torah and to mitzvahs and to, uh, uh, and to uh, maintaining and living uh, life to its maximum and having a very robust, meaningful, and purposeful Jewish living. I thank you all. Lots of, lots of fun. Uh, and thank you, uh, thank you all for listening. Salvation. 